Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. All right. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... James. James, thanks for joining us today. James happens to be Tom's brother and conveniently also likes movies. For those of you joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Nick, which is me. The movie is Mad Max Fury Road from 2015. It falls under the action-adventure sci-fi genres. The director is George Miller. He is also known for the original Mad Max, which was in 1979, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, 1981, which is my introduction to this franchise. He also did the remake of the Twilight Zone, the movie, specifically the segment Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, Babe, Pig in the City, which is very interesting considering he also did Mad Max's. Uh, I also forgot Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome. How could I forget number three? And Happy Feet 1 and 2. So quite the dichotomy of movies. Returning franchises in 2015, well, there was a lot of them, so here we go. Star Wars The Force Awakens, Terminator Genesis, Mission, Mission Impossible 5, Creed, which is in the Rocky franchise, Jurassic World, Furious 7, we're not done yet, Avengers Age of Ultron, Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2, and 007 Spectre of the Bond franchise. Now let's get back to the main event, Mad Max Fury Road. I'll tell you a little bit about this movie. The plot is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, even though it's Mad Max, he is really joining uh, Furiosa, uh, one of the main characters in this movie, as she is trying to help the five wise escape the tyranny of the Citadel. And uh, a lot of action and adventure ensues from there. So I'm sure we'll dig more into the plot as we go, but it's a, a pretty straightforward plot line. Uh, how I found the movie. I was interested in this movie when it came out. This is the one where I did not mind paying for the super mega amazing theater experience with surround sound and Dolby this and everything, just like big screens, big sound. And that is the ideal way to watch this movie. It's visually appealing. You, it really evokes all the senses, just everything. It's just a wonderful action movie in my opinion. And I thought when we were looking at our array of movies that we were going to discuss, this had to be on the list if we want to talk about like a really amazing action movie. Plot might be thin, it works, but it's, it's a lot of fun. So uh, now enough about why I wanted to see this. Tom, uh, did you have any experience with this movie? And what were your thoughts? I, I hadn't seen this before. I think I've seen, I know I've seen the first Mad Max, and I think I've seen the, the two after that, but I don't remember them very clearly. Um, this is the first time I saw it was a few days ago for this podcast. Um, and I, I enjoyed it. I, I, there's something about it that left me kind of cold. I, I don't know what that is. I've been trying to put my, my finger on it. But I really like, uh, the, the whole thing is an action sequence. And it's great, great action. 
And it's also, I love the aesthetic. The aesthetic is completely metal. <laughs> it's just this like early 80s metal. It's, it's almost like what was popular when the first Mad Max came out. It, yeah, imagining that just stayed in that world and all the people who love that still dress that way, even though they're now really old and covered in tumors as, as we see in the movie. Um, but yeah, those are the things I really like. I like obviously the, the, uh, the, the action sequences, which the whole thing is an action sequence and the aesthetic. Awesome. Uh, speaking about dress, this is a bit of a tangent here, but for Halloween one year uh, after this movie came out, my wife and I were in a Mad Max theme. So I was the a character called the Coma Doof Warrior, which is the guy with the um, flame-throwing guitar. And I was dressed up all in red. I didn't have the fancy mask, so I just had all like white all over me. And she was Furiosa, even with the um, oil over her forehead. And Interestingly enough, the reason I bring this up, we were meeting up with some of her friends in a town uh, not too far away from here. And would you believe of all people I run into is KJ's sister. <laughs> so she was at the same bar just randomly. Yeah. I remember getting a text from my sister of a picture that was pretty dark and dim. But I'm like, is that the guitar guy from Mad Max? And then the next text was, hey, this is your friend Nick. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on that note, my KJ. My character. <laughs> oh, I, I loved it. I loved yeah. him too. I loved him too. In, in, the, in the heat of battle. He's still just, you know, tearing it up. Uh, so, KJ, I'm going to turn it over to you now. Uh, any, any thoughts on this one? So, I used to travel a lot for work, um, as has been brought up in previous episodes. And while traveling, I decided to watch the original Mad Max movies with the expectations that they're kind of corny, but super fun, and I really enjoyed them. I then borrowed Fury Road from the library after hearing good things. This is back when the house was a little emptier. Um, I watched the movie and I was blown away. I thought it was excellent. Um, I don't remember where my wife was, but she came home and before she could put her bags down, I said, come sit on the couch. You have to watch this movie. And we immediately just watched it again. Um, and we loved it. So I really do enjoy this movie. Now, James, I, I hear you also enjoy movies. Did, were you familiar with this movie? <laughs> and you got any thoughts on it? <laughs> I do generally enjoy movies, yes. Now, when I was very young, I wasn't allowed to watch violent movies. I wasn't allowed to, to really watch action movies for the, first, uh, for the most part until I turned 14. My parents kind of lifted the restrictions on that. So my father took me to the video store local video store. It was called Talk of the Town. But when I was 14, he took me to Talk of the Town and he said, okay, you're old enough. You can rent whatever action movie you want. And the first one I chose with all the options before me on VHS was Mad Max. I'd heard wonderful things about it uh, back then. I mean, this was the late 90s. Mel Gibson was still one of the biggest stars in the world. And that was the first I had ever rented. I was hooked on the series uh, since then. So Fury Road was, uh, was a trip down memory lane for me. And it's also a trip down the Fury Road, but we'll get to that soon. Now, James, before we jump into this, we ask all our guests, whenever we get these guests to come in, we, we always ask them a very specific question. What snack do you recommend eating while watching Mad Max Fury Road? A big ice cold bottle of water. Now, I know that's a very, very unusual <laughs> choice. And I know you're thinking, why would, why of all the snacks in the world would he choose ice water? And I will tell you why. I have never had a movie make me so thirsty from beginning to end. The desert sequences, the hoarding of water. I was 10 minutes into the movie and I was like, I, I, am, 
I am so thirsty. I don't know what it is about this movie. So I went and I grabbed a, a nice bottle of water, nice cold water out of the fridge. And I have to say, it, uh, it complemented the theme of the movie really, really well. I, also, I can... I'm hoarding gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> or guzzoline? <laughs> guzzoline. Well, as, as the great Immortan Joe says, do not become addicted to water. It will take hold of you and you will resent its absence. So enjoy it while you got it, my friend. I already regret my decision. <laughs> it's time for Movie Quiz. So here we are at the start of round one. Each of these questions will be worth one point. The categories today are survive, oh, what a day, what a lovely day, and witness me. James, I'm going to, of course, as the guests allow you the, the first at bat for some of these in the future, but we'll just get going with survive. It's time for question one. The opening sequence reintroduces us to a damaged Mad Max haunted by the memories of those close to him lost in these wastelands. After some inward dialogue and a quick snack of a two-headed lizard, the film promptly escalates into a five-minute action-packed experience, setting the tone for the next two hours. Why did Immortan Joe and his followers at the Citadel choose to keep Mad Max alive? The most specific and brief answer will win this point. And the key part of that, again, was why did Immortan Joe and his followers at the Citadel choose to keep Mad Max alive? I think I'm locked in. We have KJ locked in. Yeah, I'm locked in. Tom's locked in. Uh, How do I lock in here? You just say, I'm locked in. I'm locked in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, James, I'm going to let you answer first. And again, why did they allow Mad Max uh, to stay alive? Service a universal blood donor. KJ? Uh, Yeah, they definitely wanted him as a blood bag. And I knew they said something about his blood, but I couldn't remember if it was old blood or pure blood, but definitely a blood bag. But I don't remember exactly why his blood specifically. Okay. Tom, you want to finish it off? O negative blood as universal donor. Be more specific. (laughs) After hearing, hearing all your answers, the points will go to Tom because he was the closest. It's O negative high octane universal donor. What, what makes you, so what makes you high octane? Good blood. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I sort of, I don't know if it means anything. Like, obviously, O negative is universal donor. I, but. I, th- I think in this world, it just means, uh, like, like, not, like, the impurities, I guess, in their yeah, world. I, I yeah. think what it is, is, and the, the whole movie does this, which I really like, is everything is, is sort of redescribed in terms of cars and the way cars work. So, you know, chrome means good, like it means like awesome. Um, and I think like high octane also means something like uh, something like good or positive too. I don't know if there is an actual high octane aspect to blood. Yeah, I, I think it's a made up term for the movie, but it works perfectly. I, yeah. I think it's just you're, you're living in a wasteland where there is a lot of mutation and disease and cancer. Like, there's a lot of things. Where I think they were just trying to say that this is healthy blood. Yeah. Uh, my, my point is that I, the, the way the future uses language is that it filters it through the prism of badass cars are good. And so, like, V8, like, V8 is, is a, almost a, a V8 engine is, like, a religious 
object almost. Um, you know, you hold up your wheel in, in celebration, that type of thing. And so I, I like the idea of the high octane as, uh, as, as like human bodies described in terms of vehicles, not vehicles in terms of human bodies. And you can imagine exactly what high octane blood is when you're seeing these action scenes. You're like, yeah, I would need high octane blood if I was going to get through this action scene at the pace and the curiosity of the action scene. Well, talk about jumping right into action scenes. That's exactly why I asked, asked this question. Let's talk about that opening sequence, just the opening sequence. Like in the question I alluded to, it, this was my opinion, but they hook you right from the beginning, just from the opening dialogue to we're getting thrown right into this. And even in the opening sequence, the iconic Mad Max vehicle gets destroyed. He gets destroyed and captured. Like it, it's just, this is what we're about to un- embark on. So any, any thoughts on that opening sequence? They don't destroy it, right? They take it and they take it on the Fury Road because he starts yelling at the guy who has it. Yeah, no, what I mean is he crashed it. So it got wrecked. It's, they it's rebuilt it. out of the yeah, yeah, equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, right from the beginning, they established Mad Max is not a superhero. He is going to get hurt. All the tropes that you're used to in these action movies are gone. Nobody is safe. Um, I also really like the use of silence in that opening sequence. The silence made you watch that frame and look at every pixel on that frame because you were nervous about what might be coming over that desert horizon. And because you couldn't hear anything, you had nothing else to do but be afraid and nervous for our hero, Mad Max. And even the whispers as he's haunted by the thoughts and the memories. Like... I would say that, the, that Max in, in the other movies from when I remember them and how it's set up is, is not supposed to be a superhero. He's supposed to be a hero. He's supposed to be this person who transcends um, whatever kind of limitations he has in order to become something more. So I, you, you need to set him up at the beginning as either contained or, um, or you know, whatever. I don't want to say down on his luck. Mortal. Under, mortal, yeah. And he has to kind of become something more. It's the Luke Skywalker thing, right? It's the, the same thing. Luke Skywalker is also not a superhero. He has to become that. I also liked um, he's running from all the guys and there's this hook coming across the sky. I, I don't even know what it was hooked to. And all of us who have seen movies before are like, oh, he's going to jump on the hook and escape. And he jumps on the hook, but then they pull him back in. And again, that's the movie telling you, you're going to see things that are familiar to you, but we're going to use them in very different ways. I like the way they explore his vulnerability. Now, it reminded me a little bit of, uh, of all things in the world, Die Hard, believe it or not. And I think a very big part of what made Die Hard so good, which is what made the Mad Max series so good, is you do see the hero right from the outset as, as vulnerable, as able to get hurt, as human. Uh, like we said, very far from a superhero. So you go into it watching it and saying, oh, he might die. He might not make it out of this. It makes you really believe that that's a possibility. And that engages you so much more in the movie than, say, you know, watching some superhero that you understand is going to be largely invulnerable throughout. What did you guys think about the use of an accelerated frame rate and also the, um, the different ways they played with light? I think the accelerated frame rate is is a lot of it's a, it's a lot of fun, and it also feeds into that 
kind of high octane aesthetic, which is, yeah, it's just, it's such a, it's such a movie like of the eighties, even though it's, you know, released in 2014, 2015, 15, yeah. 15. Yeah. I mean, it's such, you know, um, everybody looks like they're, they're at like a death metal concert. Um, and even the kind of the high octane thing is it's, this movie is more intense um, than anything else, which is, you know, the idea of death metal, right. Or, or heavy metal, it's the more intense version of rock of, of rock. Um, and so I think that that high the higher frame rate really helps exaggerate that, especially when they spray paint chrome on their mm. mouths in this kind of religious devotional. Yeah. Uh, it really speeds it up whenever they do that. I also think matched with the the sounds too. Like the the so you have the accelerate and you almost feel like when he's or at least I felt this way, when he was trying to escape he found a way to get his escape through. You almost feel like your heart's pounding and you're running with him through these tunnels as things, uh, the, the haunted whispers of the past are, are, are plaguing you and you're, you have these people running at you. And just when you think you're going to escape, they pull you back in. So I just, I just think the use of all those different techniques just blend perfectly. They also oh. oversaturate the sand color and that hyper-realistic bland oversaturated color really worked to complement all the other things we've been talking about the accelerated frame rate uh which i thought was marvelous that harkened back to a lot of the shots from uh, a couple of the originals in the series uh specifically the first one mad max it was a couple of crash scenes that had you know brief accelerated uh frame rate going into the crash and i was very interested in that because i'd never seen anything quite like that so I looked into it, and George Miller said, uh, in reference to the original Mad Max, the reason that he did that was to emulate the aesthetic of silent movies. He said, what I wanted to do with Mad Max was make a silent movie with sound. That's the way he described the aesthetic cool. he was going for. And, you know, when I looked at it, after having read that, it really reminded me of those tropes and really old-timey movies you know what I'm talking about when a train crashes or somebody falls or there's some disaster and they do, you know, kind of that accelerated rate, you know, immediately leading to the disaster. And I didn't realize that was the aesthetic he was going for until he said it. Since you mentioned the original Mad Max, this is a, a little bit of trivia that I'm not sure if everyone on uh, the podcast knows. Immortan Joe, the actor who played Immortan Joe, was actually the leader of the gang from the original Mad Max. It's not the same character in yeah. the storyline but it actually was the, the same actor from all the way back then. Toe cutter, I think was the... Yeah, I yeah. think you're right, yeah. So, okay, so I, I, I think we had uh, some interesting thoughts about the opening sequence there. I'm going to move it on to the second question, which the category was called, Oh, what a day, what a lovely day. It's time for question two. The majority of this movie takes place around the war rig with Imperator Furiosa at the helm and later Mad Max. What are the major war rig related action sequences that occur during Furiosa's plan to free the five wives? We'll take turns answering and the last person to name a correct answer wins the point. James, as the guest, I'm going to let you start off with this one. What is, what is one of the major war rig related action sequences that occur? War rig related action sequence. Uh, I mean, I guess it would start where 
Immortangio and his people are watching her over the valley and they realize that she's veered off course. Um, the encounter with the spiked sand dwellers, the sand yes. dwellers who drive in the, the spiked vehicle. It's, it's actually the, they're, they're called the buzzards gang. So mm-hmm. she veers off east, which James is 100% correct. That is the first thing that lights the fuse of the action sequences. The first encounter they come up with is the buzzards gang where they have the spikes and a lot of their equipment looks like it was made of like scrap metal. Mm-hmm. So we started with veering off east, which is correct. We have the buzzards gang, which is correct. KJ, what's next? I don't know if this was next in sequence, but one of the coolest sequences in the movie is when they enter that storm and the storm is now attacking them. It's, it's kind of their, their, the way they get away. Um, but what was cool about that is a lot of movies, you see people go into storms, but you very rarely see the inside of a storm. And does it very rarely look as cool and work as well as it did in this movie? So I'll say the storm action sequence. So far, you guys are all on point. The electrical storm slash war boys, because some of the war boys actually, yep. um, as James alluded to, when they lit the fuse, they did start sending out a war party to chase them. And then the war rig got hit with the buzzers gang. But by the time that got all done, as they're entering the storm, they're running away from the Citadel people. So some of the war boys, if you remember, followed them into the storm. And like, there was a beautiful scene where this one car gets hit and like pulled into the sky, like craziness. So we're back on track. Um, James, what's another action sequence? And it doesn't have to be in order. I liked when they, uh, when they blew the pass up, right, through that very narrow valley, right, and destroyed the, uh, the rock formation to... Uh, to bar their egress. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that's that's the scene where Furiosa actually made a deal with the rock riders, those people that are on more like dirt bikes. And yeah. she was supposed to uh, transfer 3,000 gallons of guzzoline for safe passage. And then they got kind of pissed off that she said there might be a few cars following and it was a whole <laughs> war party. You literally have uh, the, the bullet farm people, uh, gas town and the Citadel. <laughs> and uh, it, th- that encounter doesn't go the way they intend. I think that's also a, 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 an excellent uh, action sequence. Couldn't they say just gasoline? Guzzoline. I know. That was, that was the one I, I kind of like. It's been through all building. the movies. Oh, is it? Oh. I, yeah, it was the one world building element that I was like, I don't like that. They've like always that, no, that's <laughs> like that's a that's a throwback. Like that's yeah. a throwback. It's mm-hmm. not just for this movie. Yeah, that's fine. I'm gonna do, and we've done the the pass. I'll do the final action sequence going back through the pass towards. The okay, Citadel. that is definitely one, and I am lumping the road back to the Citadel as one action sequence. Mm-hmm. So the road back to the uh, the Citadel is definitely an yeah, answer. I'll take that. It's I I still have I still have uh, a few here. Uh, KJ, I'm going to turn it over to you. Sure. So another one that I really like, and action might be too strong of a word, but when they get stuck in the bog swamp. And they have to shoot out the lights of um, the Citadel owner's brother, I guess. The bullet his name. It is the Bullet Farmer. The Bullet, yeah. the bullet Farmer. I, I really enjoyed the, the colors of the bog, the, the eerie peace during that scene. And then, of course, um, Mad Max is using the uh, sniper rifle, and they only have so many shots, and are they going to be able to take the light out? And Furiosa saves the day. So I'm going to say that the bog swamp uh, trying to get the car moving again. 
Yeah, the, the swamp and the slash the bullet farmer is another one. Now, since you've all answered the same amount of questions, I will award one point to everyone unless James can steal this one because he has, there is, I, I think there is still one other action related sequence that occurred within the surrounds of the war rig that is available. So James, I'm going to turn it over to you to see if you can uh, bring up one more war rig related action scene. Oh, um, how about the, uh, this is early on the fight between Knox and Max when uh, Knox, uh, before he's stowed away on the, uh, the war rig, uh, very early on, a, a, a very nice back and forth fight scene that, uh, that I enjoyed. Was there anyone else involved in that fight scene? Furiosa. Hell yeah, she was. So uh, James, you're going to take down the point on this one because as far as I know, I don't think there's any others. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the, this is war rig related because it occurred around the war rig. There was the fight exactly with Knox and Mad Max. And of course, the, it escalated into that fight where uh, Mad Max and Furiosa really went at it. So uh, he actually, that's the scene where Mad Max shoots the leg of Immortan Joe's favorite wife, which was not a good thing for him. So, I also think she's Jason uh, Stratum's girlfriend. Oh, is that true? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> is that like Ross Rose Huntington something? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it yeah. Is. At, <laughs> least, at least she was one of the wives. I didn't know if she played the one who was shot. I think, yeah. So, you know, it's going to be that guy's going to come after you too. Oh, my gosh. I, no, I didn't know that. Um, so the reason I asked this question is this whole movie is pretty much an action sequence. I think it is the epitome of an action film because they don't dance around it. It is front and center pretty much the whole time. You're actually more shocked when there is a downturn in action. So uh, what were your thoughts on that one, guys? It, I mean, it is strictly an action movie. Um, what, what's fun about it more so than other, other action films, besides the fact that the, the action seems to be a lot more interesting and we could talk about what makes it interesting, um, I, I think is the world building around it and that what we know of this universe is generated within these action sequences. And the, the director is not particularly interested in providing us a lot of information in this, about this world, the way you might get with Lord of the Rings or something like that, that you have to sort of infer how this world works via you know, this chase sequence and how different people respond to the, the chase sequence. Yeah, he does a great job of making it feel like if I could just look around the corner, I would know a lot more about whatever they're bringing up during the action sequence. But I'm glad he never shows us what's around that corner. Mm -hmm. We get to build all that in our, in our mind. I, I also think the, um, this movie was lauded for not using very much CGI, um, which I, I get a little tired of kind of CGI bashing because it's kind of, it's, you know, it's easy to do. But I, I think that the the lack of it sort of forces you to do new things. And I think the, the kind of circus Olay performers on those giant elastic pikes that sort of bend down and swoop down with the person on the top of it to pick things up was probably my favorite detail in the picture. Um, yeah. And I loved how everything in the movie was functional. When you first <laughs> see all these sticks and spikes, you're like, ah, eh, it's just there because that's what punk rockers do or whatever. 
but almost every single sharp, shiny object is used either as a weapon or you know however they use it. But it's very, very functional in this movie. Oh yeah. Now, not only was it functional in the movie, uh, a lot of those things were functional in real life. Interesting bit of trivia on Fury Road. Uh, George Miller likes to have whatever tool or whatever effect uh, is in the movie to actually work in real life. So specifically, I'm referring to the Doof Warriors guitar and all of those amps. Uh, those weren't just props. That was a fully functional operational guitar and amp system. That worked in real life. Wow. Did it really guy, shoot out I was gonna say that, I was going to say that guy should have definitely had some uh, real good uh, earplugs in. <laughs> <laughs> what I liked about the guitar and everything, it reminded, it reminded me of old-timey fights. I'm picturing something in the medieval times where you would have had the bagpipe band going to or the drummers you know like revolutionary war yeah right right, he's like a it's a court musician Mm -hmm. that that i liked about this too there's like a a sense of the court that travels with them so you have all the drummers you you know you have the uh the court musician because it makes no sense to have the guitarist there it's just sort of like letting you know how far away they are if you're running away from them (laughs) so you know it, it has no point other than it's it's just part of this uh you know, worship of the king, which is overlaid with this cult system that's going on. The Talk war to, boys and their cult worship. To that point, too, even the, the uh, Doof Warrior, at, like, they were, like, in the swamp area at night, and he was still, like, pl- plinking on some of the strings. Like, it wasn't even, like, as loud, but he couldn't even just sit still. <laughs> yeah, you get the, the sense. It's, like, it's all cocaine and Red Bull with that guy. <laughs> Yeah, but that was, and also when he fights too, the fact that he's kind of bound elastically to the amps so that, you know, you could have those fight sequences where the guitar and the guy are swinging in circles. <laughs> um, On to the next question. We are presently, uh, the, the present point total, Tom has one and James has one. KJ, I still believe in you. It's time for question three. Category is witness me. We witness the trials and tribulations of an aspiring war boy named Nux, along with his cancerous tumor companions, Larry and Barry. Name all of the failures and successes that occur in Nux's redemption arc. The last one to name a correct response wins the point. You can name either uh, an event where the war boy Nux had a success or one of his major failures. Okay, I'm going to start out with a failure because this really made me laugh, right? When he's ready to jump on the war rig to take it back, right? He has a conversation with, with Immortan Joe right before he jumps on the rig, right? It's the first time he's ever spoken to Immortan Joe who he reveres as a god, right? And Immortan Joe says something along the lines of, you know, all right, go get him, you know, says to Valhalla. And then he jumps on the rig and gets caught up in his chain and falls down. And Immortan Joe's just like, come on, man. I think he literally just goes like, oh. <laughs> He's like so pissed. Oh, yeah, and I, I, I definitely think that is one of the major failures. And I love before that, that scene, Immortan Joe throws him a gun and he goes, no, put a bullet in her skull, stop the rig, return my treasures to me, and I myself will carry you to the gates of Valhalla. 
and then he immediately <laughs> screws it up. Like, the timing is great, too, James, because he doesn't get very far at all. Like, you have this triumphant music starting. Yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about, what, three seconds, four seconds? <laughs> like, I'm going to do it. This is my time. <laughs> that is good. Um, we're going to move on to um, Tom. Do you have a, a success or failure? But the stop war rig and trips with the gun is definitely, I would probably say, the major failure. <laughs> I'm going to do the recovery of part of the wife's garb, the white garb when he's able to get that and hold that up, um, you know, that, that's a big success because it allows him to ride with right up front in the, in the war party. Uh, so one of the things Knox does is he's, I guess the war boys aren't, they, they're kind of like vampires. They can't be out all the time and they need to refresh their blood or something. I didn't quite understand. So they're going on the big chase for Furiosa and he's stuck attached to Mad Max because he needs new blood. And he has the idea, I'm bringing the blood bag with me, which led to many, many successes. So the idea of bringing poor Mad Max with him. Yeah, no, that, that definitely was some ingenuity there. The reason I thought that, and you guys can correct me if you have different opinions, it's not so much they need to recharge. All these people are like dying of cancer and they all have deformities and, and mutations. And he literally has, as the question alluded to, two lumps, two cancerous lumps, Larry and Barry. So I think it was more of he was too sick. Got it. And that was the, you know, the way. But, you know, to us having a half-life. Yeah, they don't live as long. Yeah, which makes, some, it seems like everyone gets out of, blood or what it's almost like they don't have blood plasma maybe and so they need to be refreshed constantly because whatever the we get the indication from the the opening that radiation killed the world it was like a nuclear testing of some sort and so these seem these you know even even the term half-life right has a kind of uh radiation reference in it and so it seems like these are people who can't um can't replenish their own blood yeah, the opening sequence specifically goes over uh, Mad Max surviving different wars, and he brings up the oil war and the water war. So I think the world was destroyed in the process of people fighting for resources, which creates this radiation and nuclear environment, just not good things. And yeah. even Immortan Joe, if you look at his children, they all have deformities, which is why he has these five wives to try to come and have a proper air. Yeah, it's very Cold War, right? Like it's it's an, a Cold War version of the apocalypse. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you know what? Which I, I I would genuinely categorize as a uh, as a success is his emotional transition, right, between fighting against their liberation, right, and assisting them. Uh, generally speaking, right, uh, which is his character arc, which I thought was one of the more endearing ones of the movie, right, his change of heart, uh, I would consider that a, uh, a success of character. Uh, well, he sacrificed himself. That, you just hit the nail on the head. That's the biggest success at the end of it. In order for them to escape, he sacrificed himself to close the past. That's, boom, you got it. Failure. I'll go with failure. Okay. Uh, he 
Once entering the storm, attempts to blow up the war rig by undoing um, those, uh, by pouring basically guzzling into the cabin of his car and lighting a flare. Um, in an attempt to, to kill himself, uh, he believes he will be reborn and destroy the war rig. Max stops that, resulting in, a, in him failing to act. Agreed. I have that down as Storm Kamikaze. It, it did not work <laughs> out the, uh, the way he planned. That definitely was a failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, towards the end of the movie, the war rig is trying to get away from the parties once again. And Knox jumps on the front and is blowing guzzoline into the engine to make Furiosa's war rig go faster than the approaching party. Yes, that was a success. I'm going to put all engine-related things into the one thing. He also fixed engine one, um, but he was the... I forget there was a term they used for a mechanic. I don't remember what it was off the top. They have their own lingo, but he's one of those. And yes, he got them faster. He fixed the engine. He's James, uh, if you get this one, uh, you will continue the trend and get the point. I guess generally speaking, you know, having Max escape and... Uh, ceding the power to him to take control over the car. You remember when he says, uh, oh, he's seen my blood bag driving the, uh, it's, it's all over. <laughs> but maybe that was his most pathetic moment. You know, that was his, uh, my hero saw my blood bag driving my car. <laughs> now what am I going to do? Dude, uh, uh, yeah. Dude, where's my blood bag and my car? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was that was pretty bad. That was pretty bad. That put that put some egg on his face there. So. He wraps the cord around the tree while in the bog, in order to get the car out of the the bog or the swamp or the the former green place. Yes, yes, the war rig out of the mud. I I do count that one. Yeah, I got one more failure. So the the success he had was blowing the gasoline into the war rig to give it a boost. During that scene, the war rig is thrown and he drinks a little bit of gasoline and Mad Max is like, all right, swap it out, swap it out. You're coming in, I'm going. So he fails to be able to continue to give that. It's a small failure, but a failure of not. It fits in the parameters of the question so you will get it. There, I still do have one that I, I think is a valid and I'll even, I'll even tease it. It's a failure. I, James, can you think of any other major failures that he had uh, and i'll so just I'm go down the line trying to, trying to think of what we haven't gone through does failure to know what a tree is <laughs> <laughs> no that's just not not something no 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 major major failure Being oh, an idiot. the whole movie all i could think of how did he not know what a tree is <laughs> I consider not knowing what a tree is a major failure. Imagine looking at a tree and saying, what the hell is that? He can fix an engine, but he can't. There's no horticulture class at the uh, Citadel. That, that's all I got. Okay. Tom, any, any uh, major failure? He attempts to kill Furiosa in the cabin and is stopped by the brides. KJ, I got, you got anything? No. Okay. I- I actually think Tom is there. Uh, so there's a scene where I think Tom might have just stole this one at the last second. He tries to stop the war rig by putting on the brakes of the gas pod so that he could take over uh, the war rig with Furiosa. It was a major um, attempt, and it did not work. 
So Tom is actually going to, at the last second there, steal the point uh, to finish up round one. And we'll be back with round two after these brief messages. Have you ever wanted to learn how to play guitar? Do you have a sudden urge to reconnect with out-of-town family and friends? Perhaps you'd like to finally learn how to tie your shoes instead of relying on Velcro. With Perfectly Placed, we'll strategically position notes, instructional manuals, reference materials, and other reminders of things you'd like to do but never seem to get around to doing. After filling out our one-question questionnaire and providing us copies of keys to all your residences and vehicles, as well as combinations to all your safes, we'll place these friendly reminders for you to stumble upon throughout your day. Perfectly placed. We get around to reminding you about what you'll get around to do. And we're back for round two. Leading into round two, we currently have Tom in the lead with two points, James one point, and KJ is asked, answering really good questions, but not getting to that finish line yet. So here we go. In round two, each question will be worth two points. And there may be an additional uh, bonus point to get another point here. And bonus question to have another point within these questions. And the categories are, my world is fire and blood. I live, I die, I live again. And the breeders. This one, we'll start off with James. James, you will be able to select which category to lead off round two. Why don't we, why don't we start at the beginning? My world is fire and blood. It's time for question four. In my opinion, the director, George Miller, did an excellent job invoking all of the human senses to his audience throughout the film. What scene do you think best exemplifies this assumption? It can be related to touch, sight, hearing, smell, or taste. The most compelling example win the points. Okay. I am going to go to taste. Very, very beginning in the movie, right, when Immortan Joe uh, pulls that series of levers and, and releases the water that he's mined from deep in the earth. And you see all the people gather around with bowls, whatever they can find. You know, it's that comes out of the ground, it sort of washes over the dry desert, right? You, you get the sense of just how thirsty they must be and just how much relief that must provide. Uh, you remember earlier when I said my chosen snack of all things in the world was a bottle of water, right? But that was the inspiration for that choice. I'm getting thirsty just thinking about it, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, Tom, what, what do you think best exemplifies invoking one of the senses? Oh, boy, that was a good answer. Um, I'm going to, I'll do the easy one because I, I think actually you, you're going to, you like this, which is the. Uh, Make it simple. He'll like this one. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's an insult, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't mean it to be, but I'm happy it is. Uh, I, I'm going to say the. The guitar riff, the, that singular guitar riff, that wherever you are in the film, not only is it within the, within the frame, within the context of the film, it actually bleeds into the soundtrack itself. So you, can, you can't actually ever escape the sound of that guitar. Got it, got it. Okay, so Tom is invoking sound, guitar riff, and I always think when you're dealing with subjective questions, it's very good to insult the host who's deciding who wins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm joking, of course. KJ, moving on. All right, so this is going to be a confusing answer. The I'd expect yeah. nothing less. Because <laughs> when I think KJ, I think confusing. Confusing. Yeah, here it is. It's a crunch. You'd think this would be taste, but it's the crunch of when he bites that lizard at the very beginning of the film. You, you feel gross and squeamish and you understand how desperate everybody is in this world because of that crunch and, and the, the brains and the juices and that, that the skin of the lizard you would kind of feel on your teeth and throat as it's going down. So that, that initial crunch of the lizard. These are actually all good answers. I like the water. I like that guitar riff that you just hear in the back of your mind almost at all times with the war party always chasing. And I also like that crunch of that lizard that he just grabs and chews on before he gets hit by the members of the Citadel. When I break it all down, I think the most articulate answer is the water. The water... Uh, I think even Tom said that's a great answer. <laughs> yeah, I like that answer. Yeah, yeah. It, was mm-hmm. a, it was a really good answer. And KJ was talking about earlier, even how they deal with the coloring and the sand and the dryness, and you, you could see it and you can feel it. So that's why I brought this question up. I really, like, very rarely do I think a movie invokes all of the senses, like some visually appealing. Uh, everything looked good, sounded great. But when you start getting into taste and smell in a movie, like there was things that you'd be like, that is rotten. Or like that, you, you know, you could feel like the sand gritting in your teeth. Like it, it, I thought that was a great element of it. Are, any other ones that came up around invoking the senses that really jumped out at you during the movie? The flare signals, the kind of multicolored, puffy, um, were they, they were red and blue, is that? Were, were those the uh, colors, red and yellow maybe? But whatever, when they're, they're driving on the road and they want to signal someone, they shoot off these flares, they kind of explode in what looks like puffy chalk in, in these bright colors. Um, when they do that, the movie cuts to a very quiet sound. You don't hear the, the noise anymore. Um, and I, I like that detail. I also was grossed out anytime they took that chrome spray paint and painted it over their mouths. You could, you could just taste that. It was, I imagine a metallic paint just all over the place. You can't get it out of your mouth. It's gross. Um, the other thing I think they do at least twice is Furiosa uses, um, I don't know, maybe what the baseball players use to keep the sun out of their eyes. And she kind of smears it all over her forehead and her eyes. You could feel the sweat and the, gritty gross slime that she's putting on in the context of this movie it's you you actually hit the analogy perfectly it's supposed to be to reduce glare and in this case it's oil it's like literally like engine grease oil that they're using to 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 block the glare and it seems like there's a class of people who are able to do that like if you're higher up enough you get that privilege to oil smear as this is a limited commodity. I was going to say, is there a smell thing? There were, there were scenes where, and it's not a specific thing, but I just felt like I could, I, I felt like I could smell the, the burning of the, the 
engine grease. And like when you're in the middle of those things, mm-hmm. just like the, I, I just, I can't, I'm trying to think of one specific scene, but like, I just felt like I could smell like sweat and filth, like, like burnt, like burning smells and, um, you know, just like body odor, you know what I mean? Yeah, like these I, people, Im- I imagine. Yeah, but yeah, I, I almost spice has not survived. The yeah, process. so that's like I did feel that I all five senses really were invoked while I was watching this movie. Maybe not in every scene, but things are dirty, and you just have a feel. Like even actually in that scene that James keeps talking about with the water, those people look like 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 filthy, you know. And you could just imagine what that crowd would be like. Yeah, they're also they use a lot of disabled people. It seems throughout the picture. they did actually. Yeah, yeah, when they to kind of it. indicate the um, yeah to kind of indicate that the casualties of the series of wars that occurred beforehand. Um, what, what, one of the things I always seen where he turns on the water, I'm like that is the most inefficient. <laughs> Like, you see these fight, and then like little trickles are coming down that they can scoop up into a bowl. So maybe not the best way, but it definitely proved his point of using it as a uh, power. Yeah, it, it's also part of the cult system, right? I mean, the whole the whole thing is not really based upon efficiency. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of based upon uh, uh, religiosity. Yeah. It's a religious system. There's definitely no mother's milk available for the lower class in that society. I also feel like when the movie calms down, you can smell the heat of the desert. And then when they're in the bog, you can smell the coolness of the bog. Like the visuals, I could then imagine what, it, what my nose would be experiencing while I was there. Yeah, just like a stinky kind of like mm-hmm. muddy. Yeah, I, I agree. That's why I was saying like, even when you guys asked me that, I was like, Throughout the whole movie, I just felt like I was in that specific scene, which was great. Well, I'm going to move on to the next question in round two. Uh, Tom, we're going to let you choose between the categories of I live, I die, I live again, and the breeders. I'm going to do the breeders. It's time for question five. We're introduced to Imperator Furiosa quite early in the film during a speech by Immortan Joe himself. This top-ranking logistics officer willingly gives up her place in high regard at the Citadel for the opportunity to free the five wives, also lovingly referred to as the breeders. While her scheme appeared to be well thought out and prepared, what was the most critical error in her plan? And there will be a bonus question attached to this, uh, to this one. We can do this after the original questions of what's her biggest uh, uh, critical error. But the bonus question is name any of the wives' names. And that will be one point. The one for two points is most critical error. Locked in. Locked in. I, I'm locked in. I don't know if it's the most compelling, but we'll okay. find Okay. All right. Well, here's the error. And I don't know if she made it, but she either didn't know or forgot there's always a dude watching with a telescope. So she wasn't going to get very far before they realized she was making a run for it. KJ said, there's always a dude watching with a ch- telescope. I'm going to say failure to verify that the place that she was going to even existed anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> failure to verify. She turned into the unknown. She turned east far too early. Okay. Turned east far too early. Okay. I would say that the most critical error in her plan was 
the green place no longer exists. So the point will the points will go to James because she had this quite elaborate plan of how to escape, how to do everything. And even though she the person had the telescope, her plan was to block the pass so that they could not get through. Um, but in the end, her goal was to bring the five wise to salvation in the green place, which no longer existed. What, how elaborate is her plan? <laughs> I mean, it's get in the war rig, get the wise, yeah, go to the like, green place. So we're going to go south. No, we're going to go east. Yep, that's, <laughs> I mean, that seems, to be, seems well, to be her plan. And I also was confused by what, about the, the conflict with the, the people who controlled the pass. It seems like the negotiation is you get 3,000 3, gallons, of, gallons gasoline, of gasoline and they then block the pass. Mm-hmm. Um, however, she seems prepared to not do that. She's not going to give them. She, she's going into that situation knowing she's not going to give them the, the gasoline. I disagree. Why is that? No, I disagree. She mm-hmm. is going to give them the gasoline. There's a separate gas pod that she disconnects and she says, here's the 3,000 gallons of guzzoline the conflict occurs because the rock rider get glan, uh, clan or gang or whatever they're called says you said there'd only be like one or two cars in pursuit and there's three war parties yeah i understood that but that's I where the she, deal went. she was going to give them the guzzoline but she never disconnects it right because then when they chase her down they go that's our guzzoline yeah she didn't have the chance she didn't have the chance oh okay she didn't have the chance she was going to do that so I feel a lot of her planning for this occurred off screen because she did smuggle out the five wives, which are his most prized that, that possessions. That seems to be the most elaborate part of it. Yeah. So see. just getting them in the tanker uh, is the biggest part. So most of that we don't see on screen. So there was elements to it, but the fact that the place she's trying to escape to doesn't exist is a critical yeah. error. You yeah, know? I don't know what else she would do though, but. Yeah. Before we go into this a little bit more, though, I did want to give you guys a chance at that bonus point that I keep talking about. Name any of the wives' names, not the actress and who they're dating, but the name in the movie. I have one. I have two. Oh, okay. None. Okay. I think so, I have two. So maybe I have So I'm, James seems confident. So I'm actually going to start with Tom. You both can get points, okay? But I'm going to start with uh, Tom. I'm going to say toast and slip i think toast was zoe kravitz's character okay and james what, one of them what do you have uh i have cheeto right and my my other was toast yes right so, so I, I remember the two food names <laughs> <laughs> he also considered those for snacks during this movie <laughs> <laughs> so the names of uh, tom tom and uh james are each going to get a bonus point for that one and uh, KJ, I do not uh, think I would have known if I wasn't doing these questions. So <laughs> I did look it up. The favorite wife was named was Angharad, A-N-G-H-A-R-A-D. There was Toast the Knowing, Capable the Dag. I think that's the one you might have been thinking Uh-oh. of. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Cheeto the Fragile. Okay, so those were the, the wives' names. Uh, again, wouldn't have known if I looked it up. They did mention names during the movie. They're just sometimes with accents or just in fast-paced scenes. Yeah, it's, I not, actually, it's not important. No, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm actually... Distinguishable, yeah. I'll be honest with you. I thought no one was going to get that bonus question right. So I'm shocked that two of you 
knew any of the names. <laughs> I don't know if there's much more to talk about with her, her um, preparations for this, but I, I think a lot of it occurred behind the scene. And I, I don't think she cared about that lookout. I think she knew that lookout would be there. I think the problem was uh, she may have underestimated how quickly they would have seen it, you know, that she escaped, which also might be a critical error. So I think there is validity to that lookout situation, but I think she was going to do it either way. What do you think? If she knew about that, would she still have done it? It seems like well, the information we get is that the wives begged her to, to rescue them, right? That this was, this was something that she, um, she was kind of prompted to by them by virtue of what I think is the mother of the wives or some, or the original wife of Joe. I'm not quite sure who that woman was. I think she's more like a, like a nanny. Possibly. She's also what's called a, 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 a word burger. Well, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Cause she's covered in tattoos, like head to toe in tattoos. And I didn't know what that was about. And I had looked it up. So the, the movie ends on a quote and it's, it's, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's by the first history man. You have no idea what that is, but apparently in, there's a comic book series and I, I was reading about this. And um, in the comic book series, there is later on after the events of Fury Road, there's these people called history people, history man, history women, who they don't have papers. They just tattoo themselves with the stories of the, uh, with the history that they're encountering. Um, and she is apparently a version of that or an early version of that. And they're, they're called word burgers. <laughs> that's the, that's the, the type they are. But um, she seems to, you know, whatever, be their nanny who's helped orchestrate this as well. I said nanny. I actually think I meant like midwife, but I'm not quite sure. Like maybe all those roles encompassing. She's, she's the caretaker for the wives. But, but as this kind of, uh, those marks indicate that she's also a holder of stories or a holder of knowledge. Uh, she also may be one of the few people that are literate. You remember when they realized their wives had gone missing, somebody had written something on the wall along the lines of people are not slaves. Some message there, which I think it's implied she's the one who wrote it. So she may be one of the few literate people in that civilization. That's true. It was something like to the effect of we will not bear future uh, warlords, warlords or something like that. Yeah. 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 Who killed the world? Mm-hmm. You cannot own people. Yeah. They're, they're kind of scripted. I, I will say too, during that scene, I thought he killed her in anger at first. And then later she's in the war party when they recover the body of the favorite wife after she you know, falls off one of the cars and gets run over. That scene right there where she, they look at it and the one guy cuts the baby out of the, the dead wife and says that it would have been a perfect child. So like the one chance of him having a proper heir got stolen from him. Although while that's a powerful scene, I always thought it's a silly scene where that one uh, jacked brother with the uh, yeah. asthma or whatever he's got, he's got a breathing tank on. He's like, I would have had a baby brother. Perfect in every way. Like that was kind of a weird scene, actually. His name's Rectus, right? <laughs> Rictus Erectus. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of a weird scene, but he's just a weird guy. <laughs> <laughs> Although compre- uh, incredibly strong, there's at, at the other scene right before Nux sacrifices himself, that uh, that child or that I don't know, he's an adult, but that character rips 
the top off the engine to throw it at, like, while the engine is still pumping. <laughs> like, it's like, incre- he, he's asthmatic, but has incredible strength. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's and his brother is also uh, handicapped, but a, you're given the impression he's intelligent. Yes. Uh, whose name is Rictus Physicus, something like that. Do you remember, James? I, I don't. You're referring to uh, to the guy in the chair. Yeah. The with guy with, the, with mm-hmm. the telescope, actually. He's yeah, the yeah, yeah. Joe's children, these are his children, the leader's children. There's a kind of division between body and mind in them. Um, so, you know, it's almost like you can't, he can no longer produce whole people anymore. Like even his children are sort of divided in terms of the qualities that they possess. Kind of harken back to Beyond Thunderdome. I feel like there was two characters. There was one character. Blaster was, Master. Right. Yeah. Blaster Master. There was one character that was pretty smart and would, would ride on the back of a really strong dude. Absolutely right. I bet you that was where that came from. I also really liked in the scene where the midwife um, is still in the breeder's room and uh, the main bad guy comes in, she's holding a shotgun and could easily kill him. But similar to Robert Duvall characters in Apocalypse Now, the main villain seems kind of invincible and knows it and is able to walk up and push the shotgun away before she's able to fire. But the movie makes a point of showing that he isn't invincible. When we, when we first meet him, he's old, he's fat. We see the tumors growing on his back. And we watch people kind of cover him, watch these children the cover him. skin literally ripping off his, fle- yeah. like his flesh falling off. He needs help walking. Um, the, the movie makes a point of showing the, the humanity of the cult leader before you see him as cult leader. Um, you also don't see him do anything particularly physical or, or physically interesting. Right, he's not actually that intimidating unto himself. He just has developed this religion around himself by this point. You know what, Tom? I, I think this will lead right into our uh, final question. So let me uh, bring this one up, and I think we can continue this conversation. The category for our listening audience was "I live, I die, I live again." It's time for question six. Immortan Joe established a society at the Citadel complete with a hierarchical structure as well as religion. Regarding the latter, what is the symbol that is often referred to as the representation of greatness and glory, which, we le- which will lead them to the road to Valhalla? This is a one-word answer. I think I'm locked in. I think I know what it is. Is this a one, is this one word? <laughs> um. I'll re- you want me to read it again? Just so Please. that yeah. the, mm-hmm. the, I'll leave the, regarding the latter, which was religion, what is the symbol that is often referred to as the representation of greatness and glory, which will lead them to the road to Valhalla? Oh, I have two of them. Ah, oh, crap. Um, okay, I, I, I'll give an answer that I think is correct. Everybody locked in? Locked in. Sure. I'm really thinking I... The best I can do is guess at this one, but I don't think my guess is going to be right. Uh, I'll, I'll lock in, but I'm <laughs> confident. I don't think okay. I'm making it to Valhalla on this. <laughs> okay. I'm going to start off with um, Tom on this one. Wheel. KJ. Chrome, not the browser. James. I was going to say wheel. Shiny and chrome, all shiny and chrome. Tom, earlier in in this episode, you were saying how chrome is the epitome of greatness. 
chrome is they use the word yeah. as an adjective they use it as a slang oh that's chrome everything yeah. is chrome so it's, the society is based on the fact that shiny and chrome even when the war boys are about to um, be witnessed on their path to valhalla spray paint chrome yeah i, I would think that that chrome is sort of it's it's the color or something, right? Like what the symbol that keeps coming up every time, which is part of Joe's symbol too, is the, is of a wheel, right? That's what he kind of wears on his stomach almost. Is this design that looks like a wheel? Um, that's the the symbol above the the water where the water pours down from. Um, the other thing too is the the symbol that's supposed to be holy is the V eight. They mention this, and it's also on the chest of um, Knox. Right, that's on his chest. It's kind of a V8 engine. And it's supposed to be the embodiment of like the greatest vehicle, you know. Um, I do think I do think wheel is a good answer. I mm-hmm. do think wheel is a good. But when you actually go into the background on how chrome is, chrome is actually what is worshipped. Shiny mm-hmm. and chrome, anything that has to do with cars, and so that's actually more encompassing yes of what, mm-hmm. but i do think from yeah. like a from a perspective of like in christianity you have a cross i could see how I think you would the say wheel that is the, cro- is the yeah. symbol yeah. yeah i do see that but when it comes to actually what they value they value chrome mm-hmm. um in fact one of the things that i found out while i was uh, researching this this is you know in certain societies something that has been done before someone goes to war however he wanted to base this on that, but really show you that these people do not care about you know the health and toxicity. <laughs> that he's actually using a spray can of this chrome vehicles, uh, this this chrome spray paint to to symbolize that. There was a a documentary in 1981 called Frontline that inspired him. It was based on the career of a Tasmanian board combat uh, cameraman Neil Davis and his time during South Vietnam and Cambodia in the 1960s and early 70s. And they had a similar ritual where they had these little uh, JDDs that before they would uh, run into battle, they would put them in their mouth. So this was his version of showing as they're giving everything to their cause. Uh, And that's what would lead them to the road to Valhalla. So I I do like your answer, but I think if you look back and what they explain, that chrome is that symbol that they aspire to. Shiny and chrome, everything is chrome. Even when he's like, oh, this thing, like they use like, oh, this thing is so chrome. (laughs) Yeah. So shiny, so chrome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say that was the bigger one. I I wasn't sure if this was going to be obvious because we were talking about chrome so much earlier in the episode. So Mm -hmm. I feel like most of the talking points on this one we may have already got to. But anything else regarding whether it be the wheel or any other religious uh, symbolism or any other things that the, the society... Uh, valued during this movie well i like that it's it's a a hodgepodge of our world's um you know kind of memorabilia made up this religion it's you know engines and cars which these people don't seem to know where they came from like enough time has passed um and so the v8 is holy but also there's this kind of pseudo norse religious aspect to it like they're they're gonna go to valhalla there's also resurrection involved um uh, and instead of the hall, like Valhalla seems to be instead of a hall, like Valhalla in, in in Norse mythology was a hall where all the great warriors would go. In this case, it seems to be a road, right? Like Valhalla is is this this place that's like you know whatever like endless road 
almost like the drive itself is celebratory or celebrated. I almost got the the vibe when he's talking about the hodgepodge that Immortan Joe had like one book and it happened to be on like Norse religion. And when he was creating the Citadel, I'm like, this sounds great. I'm just going to rip all this off. They don't know how to read. We're good. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, it, it's also, I mean, it reminded me a little bit of what uh, like Charles Manson did, which is Charles Manson kind of started his own religion basically by drugging everyone constantly and, you know, telling them his beliefs. And over time, it sort of was things he was saying, sort of things that emerged that people were, you know, kind of willing to believe, things that people weren't willing to believe, it sort of went by the wayside. Um, and and you, you get the impression that this guy just rose to power by virtue of control of resources. He controls the water. Um, and that some people around him were kind of willing to take on these beliefs, in part because he separates his physical person from them. If you want to see him, for the most part, you need you know, binoculars to look up at him. Um, and so that, that seems to be part of it, too. It's also interesting because we see the people eater, the guy with the kind of syphilitic nose, the metal thing on his nose and the, the bullet eater, bullet, bullet farmer, farmer. Bullet, bullet farmer. farmer. Yeah. They don't seem to be part of this religion. Right. Cause especially the people eater seems to be like, this is stupid. Why are we wasting these resources with a family squabble? So this, this religious thing um, seems also to be very, very localized. It's not, not even this entire society is part of it. Yeah. I, I think it's uh there semi-autonomous but not fully they're under the umbrella and when i was looking into some of the backstory which you really don't get in the movie i think they were like his um um lieutenants or whatever in the wars so immortan joe is actually a war hero from back in the day and i think more yeah and i think these were people that were under him and that he trusts but Again, there's some distance, so I guess they get to uh, kind of rule their own little fiefdoms under the Citadel's umbrella. So I just, the only last part I'll bring up on this with the hierarchy is it's quite literal. The higher you are in the Citadel, the higher your rank in society is. So you have Immerton Joe's family, the, <laughs> the ladies who make the mother's milk, his wives, and even the gardens and all that are on the higher levels of the plateaus. Then lower working some of the mechanisms and all that, you have the war boys. And like Furiosa actually gave up a lot. She was a very high ranking person. She ran the war rig. That's what all the war boys aspire to. And then you get further down where you just have the peasantry who are just literally uh, living on scraps. So uh, that ends round two. And it looks like James, I mean, it must be because he loves these movies so much. He took down this episode with five points and we had Tom and KJ tied for two. So congratulations, James, for uh, not only joining us, but winning your first episode. Uh, So good job, my friend. It was a a fierce competition, but I I hope you uh, treat yourself to a big, tall bottle of water. let's, Let's see if our audio can get this. Ah, that, that's a big <laughs> celebratory sip of water right there. There we go. Well, we're going to jump right into uh, Movie Rant, although we covered a lot on this movie already, right after these messages. Perfectly Placed is a service where we perfectly place instructions, items, and other things you need to get you through your day. But enough for me. Let's hear from one of our customers. 
I'm Max, and I'm being paid to promote Perfectly Placed. I'm the hunter, and the hunted, driven to the ends of these wastelands by the relentless pursuit of the hooded scavenger, ejected from my vehicle and pinned down by shrapnel. I lie limp as the pursuer surveys his prey with a buzzing chainsaw at the ready. I reach for my rusty double-barreled sawed-off, my salvation in hand. Now... The absence of my fury only means one thing. I should have renewed my subscription to Perfectly Placed. Perfectly Placed. We get around to reminding you what you'll get around to. And we're back for our favorite movie rant section. It's time for Movie Rant. I'd like to start off the ranting uh, today with asking this question to you guys. Who is the star of this movie is it mad max or furiosa or someone who i don't know (laughs) so what are your thoughts on that that's a very good question i was wondering that myself and i was unable to come up with an answer it's max sorry (laughs) not to not to be definite (laughs) (laughs) he's the one who goes through the biggest transformation he's the one whose perspective we follow through the whole film we see him um, outside of the, the context of Furiosa and the Citadel in a state of, uh, you know, in, in kind of a negative state, in a state that he's unprepared to make a sacrifice for others or to undergo a journey. And by the end of the film, he's able to do that. I mean, it's, it's entirely like a classic hero's journey via the perspective of Max. It's interesting that it's Max because for the first 30 minutes, Max is as much as an audience member as we are. He's just observing, being dragged along. He doesn't have a lot of agency until about 30 minutes in. Yeah, he, that, you know, that's true. Uh, but he has to make a decision. What, what I'm basing this on is the idea that he, as somebody who develops, has to make the decision to do the right thing when he doesn't want to. And by the right thing, I mean helping the, the brides escape the Citadel. Um, escape the, the war party. And maybe I'm being influenced by the previous movies, but in the previous movies, he's also, he's not a character who normally makes bad decisions and then by the end makes good decisions. He generally seems to always make mediocre decisions. It, it's not the quality of the decision. It's for whom he's making the decision, right? It's not, he's, he's not, um, he's making a, dec- he's making decisions initially to to help himself right and and basically it makes sense because he's he's a prisoner he is going to be a prisoner again if he doesn't get away when he has an opportunity to get away and eventually by the end he's able to go to furiosa and instead of going his own way which is what he wants he's able to embrace the role that's that's uh that he's stumbled upon which is um you know kind of saving the society being the hero that redeems the society and in so doing he's redeemed you have to remember too that he has these ghosts that chase him of people he was he was not able to save and by taking on the responsibility of overthrowing joe's or helping to overthrow joe's reign he is then redeemed in so doing in my head canon all he wants is his car and the best way to get his car back it's to say, hey, Furiosa, why don't you go back over there? We're friends and I'll get my car back. It's interesting you should use the word canon 
because unlike many franchises, I don't think this is a one, two, three, four, etc. I, from my understanding, these are more like lore and Mad Max is going through this world, but it doesn't mean that all these stories actually happened. This is just my interpretation. It doesn't mean that you know, mad, maybe the first one, but who knows? Like that you don't know if this happens. So the fact that he at the end just drifts off into the crowd, we just don't know. So sorry, I went a little rambly there, but it's just, I don't know if this is, if there really is a, a Mad Max canon or if it's just somebody told this tale of the story they went through or Furiosa said all this. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's kind of the, uh, how, uh, how Road Warriors frame. So Road Warrior is framed um, through a, a narration. There's a narrator at the beginning who, at the end of the movie, turns out to be that young, feral kid, right, who's running around in, uh, in Road Warrior. And he describes Max kind of as a legendary figure, as a mythical figure in that movie. And the movie ends him saying, um, you know, we went and we, we were able to start our own life, our own new life. And what happened to this Max, what happened to this, this mystical figure is he, he faded away. He went off, you know, on his own road and we never heard from him again. So I think, yeah, to some degree, there's always been some kind of mythos around him. You know, to, to what degree are these legends true, you know, or to what degree are these things we're hearing about him from other people? Yeah, it, I think it's also, it's similar like the King, the King Arthur stories. The idea that there's a canon in which you know, we know that Percival got the grail or, and not Lancelot or something like that. It, it's sort of the wrong frame to look at legend or myth, right? And this, or the Greek myths, right? You know, to, to say that, um, that uh, Bacchus had this or that children definitely is silly. It, it's a collection of myths that we sort of keep alive. Um, and the idea of canonicity is, is misapplied when talking about myth. And I think Miller is going for that, like you said, James, with, with these various legends. And I think the, the quote in which it ends on, regardless of what the content of the quote is, because I can't remember it, is sort of this idea of we're now scripting legend, or this, what we just saw, is being scripted or brought into legend. Tom talking about Arthurian legend made me think back to our Monty Python and the Holy Grail episode. It didn't come up in the episode, but I always love the dialogue uh, to the effect of just because some watery tart threw a sword at you doesn't, you know, make you, is not the best way to uh, form a government or something like that. (laughs) Well, in in this film, it's some old, old tart throws water at them. That's what makes them king. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. But yeah, I would say that, and it's not that Furiosa isn't a hero. It's just, we're not, we're not tracing her arc of development in the same way we are with Max, right? She is, she, by the time we met her, she has embraced that role, that kind of redeemer role. And she even says that they're, they're both doing it for redemption. We don't know Furiosa's reasoning for this, something to do with her mother, maybe. Um, but I, I think we're more closely following Max. It does feel like we start in the middle of a movie with this movie. If this was Furiosa's movie, the act that we're missing is the planning of the heist and maybe her ascension to her spot. So if, and I agree, I don't think this is her movie, but if it was, we're starting in the middle and seeing how it ends instead of seeing how she got there. Well, in the beginning, we're, we're, we are in the same audience as Mad Max. 
seeing this develop in front of him. And he just happens to be us on the screen at some point in the future. And then he fades off in the distance. I will say that her story arc is extremely compelling and very enjoyable to the fact that there is, and again, there have been rumors for quite some time that they're actually going to do a Furiosa prequel because they want to tell more of that story to your point that we did not know yet. Uh, I actually was, uh, my wife was nice enough to send me an article just the other day, just at a coincidence uh, to this podcast that uh, it actually probably will not be Charlize Theron in that role because they're looking for someone in the early twenties. George Miller's finishing up a movie right now. Once that can be finished because nothing is working right now, this is the next project he wants to do. So I, even he feels that there is a compelling story to have there, but it, it is a Mad Max movie. But I do wrestle with the fact that a lot of times when I talk about this movie, I'm talking about Furiosa and what she did, not so much what Mad Max did. Her, her moment when she decides to get redemption is not in the movie. She's decided that beforehand, right? Max, we see, make that decision. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing to point out that maybe this is Max's movie and not Furiosa's is one thing that always felt a little strange to me was the third act. There's a version of this movie where they get to the end and they say, okay, we're going to ride 160 miles or whatever, continuing to go east. And they ride off into the sunset and the audience assumes, well, I guess things worked out for our, our crew. But instead they turn around and go back. That always felt very strange to me. But to your point, Tom, if this is Max's movie and that's his redemption, that's why we get that amazing third act where they just rewind and George Miller gets to put every, every amazing action thought he had on film in front of us. KJ, it also seems off for you because they changed the ending from the original script. There was a version where they did not go back to the Citadel. You have to kind of return to, you know what I mean? Like take on the greatest challenge possible. Um, and in doing that, you're able to then kind of return home. I mean, the, the, the problem I have with Max walking away, I know it's, it's what he does in every movie, is that he doesn't really have a home to return to. So it, it ends up kind of, you know, it ends up being kind of Furiosa's thing, I guess, at the end. She, she's able to eventually find complete atonement by, by returning home a changed person, you know, having, having gone through the ordeal. And so presumably is Max. I mean, Max has changed. He's he helped save the society. Um, and yet at the same time, he has no place in it, which, you know, which is, is a little odd. I, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Um, I didn't. I don't know if I particularly liked it. <laughs> it seemed well. That's, what, what do you think it does? Him not having a place in the society. What do you think it does? It lets him get his car and drive to the next movie. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do see that it is functioning again at uh, some point, so that's good. Mm. I like the fact that he walks away at the end because the the sky's the limit on what they can do with him in the future. If he gets stuck, in, if he stays in the Citadel, now his story is there, but really that's Furiosa's story. He has to move on to the next Mad Max story. Yeah, yeah, he's sort of no longer a character, no longer a hero, and now he's a, now he's a legend or moving into the legend space, I guess. Um, but he's already been there. That's the thing. It's not like, just like James was talking about earlier. Yeah, it's every movie. It's a reiteration of that yeah. process. Mm-hmm. Although I will say... 
talking about each one not being canon. The one thing that was very confusing in two and three is there's a side character who occurs in both those movies. He's not the same character. Uh, I don't remember what he does in, in the road warrior off the top of my head, but in, in, in Mad Max three, he's a pilot in a plane with his son. And at first I was like, is that the same person who we met along his travels there? They are not the same people, even though it's the same actor. <laughs> so total tangent. But, I think he does that a few times, right? Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Immortan Joe, you know, mm-hmm. same actor playing a different character. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, I forgot about the, uh, oh God, what was the character? The, the gyro captain. Yes. You know, something I think they called Toe cutter? No, 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 no. no. no, no. Toe Cutter was the original villain who was played by the same actor, you know, who played Immortan Joe in Fury Road. But they had a character in um, in Road Warrior called uh, the Gyro Captain or something. You know, he was a, a goofy looking guy that flew, you know, this little gyrocopter that was uh, that was Max's ally. And he was also Max's ally, I believe, in the Road Warrior, but it was a completely different character. I thought he had, like, met his friend again, and the guy had uh, a plane now. <laughs> it wasn't the same guy. I'm like, why are you treating each your friend like that? Oh, wait, it's a different person. Some of the things, again, even just preparing for this episode, I went a little into lore, which we don't usually we, – we focus on the movie itself, but – a lot of people are curious, when did she lose that arm? She actually lost that arm in service to the Citadel. So she was not, as a young girl, you know, missing, missing it from any kind of other accident. So that was in service. She has done things to keep the engine of the Citadel alive. And now she's trying to be redeemed, which, as Tom said, is off screen. But I, I still think, regardless of if it's Mad Max or Furiosa, it is an amazing action film if you want to see beautiful things explosions cool sequences that's exactly why i I picked this episode for us to explore and funny enough going back in time this is one of the few movies where i saw the sequel before the original so when i was younger i found a bag of vhs's on the way to school one day now don't worry there was nothing in it that was too surprising but this somebody must have recorded everything they had ever watched on hbo this was probably in like sixth grade this was a major find for me okay stack i mean conan the barbarian that was probably the most risque because there's a little nudity in there but i found this giant bag of vhs brought it to school, put it next to my locker, and then brought it home, and then just continued to watch all these movies. And The Road Warrior was one of them. Loved it. Um, And then years later, I saw Mad Max. I actually was not that big of a fan of the first movie. So I was actually wondering how The Road Warrior even came to be. And the Thunderdome is a sight to be seen for some reasons. (laughs) Not necessarily the highest standard for the the franchise, but it's still worth worth a watch, even if you're just going to laugh at, uh, what was it, Tina Turner? Who was in that one? Tina yeah, Turner. Tina Turner, Beyond the Thunderdome. Two men enter, one man leave. One other thing um, I wanted to bring up before we wrapped up, I think what really sells this movie is the editing. The action scenes are amazing, and they give you a sense that you know what's going on, but if you really think about it, you have no idea what's going on, and I think it works really well to provide focused chaos throughout the whole movie and and i think a lot of that goes to the editor yeah i I think action sequences are are like dance sequences um if the the dance it doesn't have to be 
linear, but if it's incomprehensible, um, if you're not able to follow the narrative of the dance, it's not a good dance recital or dance performance. Um, even if it's abstract, I think of like a Pina Bosch is, um, is a, an abstract choreographer. She's dead now who, who would work in, um, in a, in a way that wasn't a narrative, but still highlighted conflict. And I think action movies, when they're good, work in the same way. We know where everything is. We know, um, cause and effect within, within the frame. And a lot of action movies are so hard to follow. They, they don't have the, uh, they don't have that narrative that's formed by the editing, as you mentioned. KJ, I also think that's an important point because if you've, I'm sure we've all watched an action movie where the fight sequence went on a little too long. All of a sudden, the kicks and the punches and the blows, they all start blending together. What was great about this movie is they could keep that pulse high, but still transition and you stay engaged. They know how to cut it from a person jumping from one vehicle to another to people being slung on these giant sticks coming and, and, and the, the sequence of events to keep you engaged in an extended action sequence was perfectly executed in my opinion. It looks like we all thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Is that an assumption? Tom, did you thoroughly enjoy this movie? I liked it. I, okay. I, I thought there parts of it. I, I mean, the, the, the sort of, patriarchy versus matriarchy framework that, that comes in a, it's not a framework sorry it's it's the conflict at the end that that left me like a little cold um i i'm not sure i'm not sure if it worked poorly um but it i don't know i don't i don't quite know what my feelings are about that if that's okay to end on as <laughs> extreme ambivalence um but i i'm not sure it worked as well as you know the kind of um high octane aspect of the experience so it seems we all were mildly entertained with this movie <laughs> i was very entertained no i, okay. I will say that i was i was very entertained well i want to make sure our audience knows that each one of us was very entertained by this movie and in addition to that not only would i like to thank james for joining us today i'd like to congratulate him for winning the trivia crown on this amazing episode I'd also like to thank our intuitive editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. While I'm at it, I'll acknowledge IMDb because it's a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes, as well as our YouTube channel, Talking Pictures Trivia. Join us next time when we discuss KJ's recommendation from 1968, Planet of the Apes. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.